0: Our reading today is from Mark's Gospel. Mark's Gospel, and we're beginning today at verse 22. Mark, uh, sorry, chapter (laughs) 8. Chapter 8 and verse 22. Reads as follows And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. After that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored. And saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi. And by the way he asked his disciples saying unto them whom do men say that I am? And they answered John the Baptist but some say Elias, Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, But whom, ye, sa, whom say ye that I am? And Peter answereth and saith unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him. But when he turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savourest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. Okay, then. Well, as I said to you last week, we were at a pivotal point in Mark's narrative. And even today, we're going to see a clear shift in Jesus' attitude as he prepares his disciples for his final days on earth. We start moving very quickly now to the final week in Jerusalem. And that week alone takes up around a third of Mark's gospel That's why someone described Mark's work as the story of Calvary with a very long introduction. (laughs) We left the story last week with Jesus and the disciples in a boat, you may remember. And he rebuked them for their lack of understanding and their hard-heartedness. Beware of the leaven of sin, he told them. Today we catch up with the missionary group as they land in Bethsaida. It's a village on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's a significant place. It's where Simon Peter was from and his brother Andrew, also where Philip was from too. Jesus had fed between five and 10,000 people miraculously in this place. And also it was while the disciples were in a boat On the way to Bethsaida that that Jesus was seen walking on the water. And there were were many other things done. But with much blessing comes much responsibility. Now paradoxically the, the more blessed you are in this life by God. The more cursed you are in the world to come. Should you not respond appropriately to those blessings. One of the other gospels records Jesus railing against Bethsaida, he makes it plain that after all the miracles done there, the appropriate response from the people would be to repent. But dreadfully, he tells them that they'll fare worse at the judgment than all those infamous cities of the world like Tyre and Sodom. And adding to the list of blessings that had received, Jesus today heals a blind man then. You'll note, like the man on the stretcher, the one let down through the roof, that the faith of others is involved in this episode as well. Either his family or his friends brought into Jesus and begged Jesus to heal him. And even if they've seen miracles before, even if they've been a part of them, It still takes real faith to believe a man who's blind could ever be able to see clearly just like other people. When our friends and family are ill, the usual response is that we we pray to God, for God to make them better. And so let this be an encouragement to you that if the hard-hearted the hard-hearted people of Bethsaida had faith that Jesus could heal. So much more should we be prepared to petition God on behalf of those who we care for who are ill or in pain. We noticed recently, did we not, Jesus' miracles are sometimes done in unusual ways. This one's also unique. It's the only one where a healing is done in two stages. So firstly, Jesus put some spit on the man's eyes, like he did with the, on the tongue of the guy who was mute. And he put, he put his hands on the man, and he asked him what he saw. And the blind man reports he's regained some of his vision. He, he sees men walking about, but at the moment they just look like tree trunks, by the way, some people assume, because he mentioned, I see men that look like tree trunks, that look like trees. Some people assume this man was once not blind. And they, they, they reason that, well, if he's always been blind, he wouldn't know what a tree looks like. But well, that's obviously not, it's not a valid assumption, is it? Blind people can get an idea of the shape of objects just through touch. And he would have he leaned on many a tree Jordan's blindness, and I'm sure he was very familiar with the shape. All he's doing here is telling Jesus he sees men in the shape of tree trunks. Jesus moves on to step two anyway. He puts his hands on the man's eyes. This time when the man looks up, he sees everything, clear as day. We shouldn't jump to conclusions about why Jesus healed in these two stages Maybe it was just to show that he does things his own way and his way is right. Right. But as you know, I often throw in some suggestions for you to think about and study. And so, some have compared the man's physical blindness to the disciples' spiritual blindness. They were at a point where they had some spiritual vision... I mean they've been following Jesus, they've been travelling around with him, they knew he was from God. But it's clear from what we've seen in previous weeks and what we're about to look at today the disciples certainly needed a second touch from Jesus to give them that revelation of who he really was. When we read of uh, Peter's really profound confession of faith... We mightn't be surprised that many have identified this as the central point in Mark's gospel. This is the first time we hear of any uh, of the disciples uh, openly stating Jesus was the Christ of God. Uh, The thing is that the power of this confession is undermined by what follows. Jesus addresses the disciples, although it wasn't a secret meeting public could listen in if they wanted he starts telling them about his final days when he'll die Peter pulls him up about it. he doesn't like what Jesus is saying and tells him so it's almost unbelievable what he's saying you are the chosen one of God, the prophesied Messiah the Christ of God but what you just said is wrong and I'm going to enlighten you wow Jesus' response was cutting, to say the least, if not savage. He's speaking to Peter, but addresses him as Satan. And this raises a whole load of questions. So I'd like to take a few minutes to examine this. Well, firstly then, some comments about the word Satan. Satan. The Old Testament Hebrew word and the New Testament Greek word are very similar to the one we use in English. In Hebrew, we find the word satan, while in Greek it's satana. The word is employed in slightly different ways. I'd sum it up like this. In a general sense, the word means accuser, but the context might direct us to read it as, well, adversary uh, or slander it uh, as well i know many people assume the word must always refer to the devil but well, that's not correct anyone who accuses or opposes another could be described as uh, a satan now we, we wouldn't use that language in every day in our everyday language but Obviously there's one who's noted. For his sinful accusations. Oppositions. Slandering. And that is the devil himself. And this is why he is given Satan. As an actual name. Just so there's no confusion. Whenever you see the word Satan in the New Testament. It does refer to the devil. Therefore it is uh, capitalised it's a name it's only in the Old Testament where there's any debate at all about whether the word refers to the devil himself uh, or some other accuser now it might interest you to see that there is a holy being in scripture described as a Satan now I mean Satan in the, in the original language it's found in Numbers, and chapter 22. And it's the episode with Balaam and the donkey. And verse 22 says this. God's anger was kindled because he went, and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. The word translated adversary is Satan. My own view is this angel of the Lord is none other than Jesus Christ, not incarnate of course, but in a human form. In theology we call this a Christophany. Whether this was Jesus Christ or a created angel, the point is, Satan can refer to both holy opposition and sinful opposition. <clears throat> the question I think needs addressing is, what Jesus meant when he said to Peter, get behind me Satan. Has Peter now been completely taken over by Satan? To show why this is an unreasonable conclusion, I thought we'd look at three verses from the New Testament. The first one is in 1 Corinthians and chapter 5 and verse 5. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 5. we begin uh, beginning halfway through a uh, uh, discourse. To deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now, uh, a willfully uh, disobedient believer can be shunned by the church. And this is compared to handing him over to Satan temporarily uh, with their ultimate benefit in mind. There's another verse, Luke, Luke chapter 22. Luke 22 and verse 3 says, Then entered Satan into Judas, surnamed Iscariot, being of the number of the twelve So here, Satan's described as entering into a person. But this is associated with apostasy. And so it's not really applicable to Peter. And later on in in the same chapter in Luke, verse 31, we read, And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Satan would have loved To have entered into Peter as he did Judas. But Peter had the Lord on his side. Jesus told him he prayed to the Father on his behalf. And this was to assure Peter of his safety in Jesus. So those verses help us to give a little bit of a a better perspective on what Jesus meant. So I'm just going to offer you three possibilities about what was meant in this rebuke of, of uh, Jesus's. So, firstly, it's possible that Satan had such an influence on Peter at that moment they could be addressed as one. Peter had become like Satan because at that moment he was demonstrating the same attitude Satan had. As an illustration, if, I, if uh, I'm not a fan of communism... <laughs> Um, but if a communist say started preaching his socialism to me, I might try. I might try to shut him up by saying, "Okay, okay, that's enough, Stalin," and call him by the you know name him after uh, Joseph Stalin. So it could be that sort of uh, usage. Secondly, there's the possibility Peter was being addressed first, then Satan. Now, some of the informal translations of the Bible express it that way. However, none of the, the most accurate translations put it like that. They all say Jesus was speaking to Jesus only. A third option is the word should have been translated merely as opposing rather than uh, the name Satan. Now, given all the other references in the New Testament are translated as the name Satan, it it seems unlikely, but not impossible. But I think the first point is the right one. What I really want to talk about today, actually, is the identity of Jesus Christ. The questions he asks the disciples and their responses is very important. I'd like us then to consider these three things, who the people of Jesus' day thought he was. Who his disciples thought he was. And finally, who we think he is. So, who the world thought Jesus was. I think Jesus asks these two questions to highlight that there should be a difference Between what the world thinks and what the disciples think. They've been with him. They've sat at his feet and been taught. They should think differently. It's reported to Jesus that many people had a high opinion of him. Some thought he was John the Baptist. Reincarnated. Remember, John had a large following. Thousands came to him to declare their repentance towards God. They marked it by subjecting themselves to John's baptism. Others thought Jesus was a reincarnation of Elijah. And he also was an important figure. He's used uh, as a representative of the whole body of Old Testament prophets. He took on the enemies of God single-handedly and defeated them by the power of God. And a few thought he was... A few people thought Jesus was one of the other prophets from the scriptures, or maybe a new one. We can see why people thought this way. Uh, Jesus preached the kingdom of God with power and authority, just like the Baptist. He performed miracles and was persecuted, just like the Old Testament prophets. And no one aside, except they had some revelation of God, would... Think Jesus to be God in the flesh because he looked just like a man from down your street. So the people's conclusion, if not a spiritually enlightened one, did at least make sense from a human perspective. Well, of course, in one sense, the people were right. Jesus was a prophet. But he was so much more than that, more than they can imagine. He was the Christ, he was the Messiah. It's so strange and saddening then to hear Jesus announce he's going to be verbally and physically abused and ultimately killed by the very religious people who were most looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus wasn't taken by an angry mob of atheists to be put to death, but by some of the best of humanity in the day. He wasn't crucified because of some hasty misjudgment but as a result of careful deliberation. His accusers, religious Satans, if you like, had the background of the finest moral and legal standards in the world. The commentator, France, he calls this the paradox of an unrecognised Messiah. They waited centuries for their Messiah and when he stood in front of them, they did all they could to have him killed as soon as possible the world today is much different apart from the small minority of argumentative atheists and agnostics people generally believe jesus existed you can ask them if you like i fully expect you will get the same sort of response as i've always had they'll tell you he was a good man no doubt they'll confess him maybe to be a, a wise teacher. But like the Pharisees, they'll stop short of declaring who we declare him to be. So that's the world's view. What about the disciples? Who his disciples thought Jesus was? Who his disciples thought he was? When the disciples. Heard Jesus ask a second question. It was Peter who stepped up. Who are you? Why, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah prophesied long ago. You are the chosen one, the one who will deliver Israel. When Jesus goes on to refer to himself as the Son of Man, it's no accident. Although the titles used in the Bible to describe Uh, mortals. It's also used to describe a messianic figure. In the book of Daniel we see this title used in connection with suffering, enthronement and authority. So the two titles are very much connected. What does Messiah mean? Messiah, what's it mean? It's the same title as Christ. It refers to the anointed one. Now, of course, there were numerous people in the Old Testament who were anointed. But there was always this Jewish belief in an anointed one above them all. Every generation of Jews was brought up on this expectation of the coming Messiah. However, the Jewish understanding of the Messiah was flawed they understood the deliverance of Israel carnally. They expected material rather than spiritual prosperity. I've mentioned this fault in Jewish interpretation of the scriptures on previous occasions. They find it difficult to understand anything except in a literal sense. For example, I, I heard a, a Jewish teacher say... That the, the, the right hand of God, when we read that in scripture, it means that uh, we should treat our right hands as, as good and our left hands as bad. So they'll, only do, they'll do some things only with their right hands and some only with the left. They seem oblivious to what the phrase, the right hand of God, symbolises And I've even seen this tendency in the professing church. Mostly in the, uh, <coughs> mostly in Pentecostal churches I have to say, bless them. Uh, what one told me that when the, the scriptures talk about to, was it, uh, mounting up with wings like eagles, that it really must have something to do with birds, must have something to do with eagles. Rather than a promise of deliverance to the church. I suppose it's because of this literal perspective. They interpret the book of Revelation the way they do. Whereas we, when we went through it, we saw this as a book of pictures. But they want they wanted to read it as literally as possible. And this results in really some bizarre interpretations. Well, getting back to the passage... We now have a better idea of what the Jewish expectation of the Messiah was. Peter was acting according to his heritage. He believed in a Messiah. He even believed Jesus was that Messiah. But at the back of his mind was this constant expectation that Jesus was the one to bring about military conquest on behalf of the Jews. And institute a golden age of material prosperity. His confession may have been flawless, but the understanding behind it was utterly wrong. Here's the third point who do you think Jesus is? Can there be a more important question that can be posed to the whole of mankind? Who do you think Jesus is? There's a poster on the side of our church building asking the question, what think ye of Christ? Who do you think Christ is? What do you think about him? A right understanding of who he is is necessary for a right relationship with him. By the looks of things, Jesus regards it as far more important his disciples understand who he is than anyone else. Just look at the harsh rebuke he aims at Peter. No one else was ever addressed in this way by him. None of the religious hypocrites or pagan Romans received a sterner rebuke than this. Peter was chief among the apostles. He'd be taught face to face by the master himself. Yet see how quickly he went from this outstanding testimony to an undermining of the work of Christ. His false understanding of the Messiah caused him to be outraged by Jesus' speech. What what will will our glorious leader be taken like a common criminal and killed? Really? Is that the king of Israel's plan? We should treat this as a warning. If, if someone like Peter can have a faulty understanding of who Jesus is, so too can any of his followers. Take time, friends, to nurture a correct view of Jesus. <clears throat> not, only, not only will you please your master, but you will be greatly blessed as you grow in knowledge of him. And his work of grace. I said to you, Jesus was. Jesus came to fulfill the great prophecies of the Bible, including Isaiah 35, I mentioned last time. He didn't come to take revenge on behalf of the Jews and provide them with a better lifestyle. As Messiah, he was to bring in a deliverance for his people. That would last for eternity. Through his death and resurrection. He would bring in salvation. To the true Israel of God. All the elect throughout all ages. Of Jew and Gentile. This declaration that Jesus makes in our passage. Is another indicator of the change of direction of Mark's gospel. So the emphasis is moving away from miracles and turning instead to Calvary. Peter's confession, you're the Christ, is the backdrop against which Jesus begins to explain to the disciples exactly what his mission was. To feed the Romans? No, they're going to torture me. Conquer the world? No. No the world is going to kill me jesus was most certainly a prophet and the chief of all the prophets but he was also the christ what what he's revealing to his followers is how he's to accomplish this great salvation predicted so long before he had to suffer and die The sins of his people were laid on him. The father treated him as if he were the thief, rapist and murderer. And he punished this, his own son, with all the fury those sins deserve and much more. God demands the death penalty for sin. Someone had to die. And in the message of the gospel is that stark reality. Either Jesus Dies in your place or you take all the punishment for your own sins and such is the extent and seriousness of your sin there will never be a time when you have paid off your debt to God and this is why we talk about a lost eternity Jesus Christ suffered and died The suffering was not a pretense and neither was the death. But this man was more than a man. He was the son of God. The grave opens its arms to welcome multitudes in. And this man walks right out. He just walked out. After three days he rose again exactly as he predicted And having risen from the grave and ascended to heaven, he now reigns. All authority in heaven was given to him. On earth he preached about the kingdom of God. And now he sits and reigns, showing himself as its king. And in mockery of the kingdom of Antichrist, he ordained to be crucified with a sign above his head. Declaring him to be the king of the Jews. And we now understand what this title really means. He is the Lord of his church. Remember what we came across in Revelation. In chapter 11. It's in verse 15. And the seventh angel sounded. And there were great voices in heaven saying. The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign for ever and ever. And the four and twenty elders, which sat before God on their seats, fell upon their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thee thanks, O Lord God Almighty, which art and wast and are to come, because thou hast taken to thee thy great power and hast reigned. And as we talk about Jesus suffering, dying, being resurrected, and reigning, I want you to remember this. We are united to Him. This isn't merely a declaration that we are part of Christ's group, nor is it limited to our relationship with Him in this life only. We are joined with his body we are one with him theologians call this the the mystical union with christ the new testament is clear on this because of our union with jesus we're set to have experienced those things he experienced in a way that is hard to fathom. When he suffered and died. We suffered and died with him. When he rose from the dead. We rose again with him. And as today. He reigns on high. So we reign with him. Now to, to understand this properly. Is beyond me. You know it's. It's as if I was hanging on the same Cross. It's as if I died and shared his grave. It's as if when he marched out of the realm of Hades, he took my hand and brought me out. And it's as if I now sat on his very throne, ruling the world. How can I possibly relate to that? Well, that's what the scriptures say. Consider Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 says... Know ye not that so many of us as were baptised into Jesus Christ were baptised into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. That, like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The work of the Holy Spirit is... uh, it's described, when he converts a person, it's described as a baptism. And the the water baptism we subject ourselves to is not the true baptism itself, but a picture of it. And when the Holy Spirit does his work in a man or a woman or a child, this mystical union is formed. And in this union, our punishment, our sin, falls on Christ. And his holiness is applied to us. What do you think of Christ? What do you think of him? Do you confess him as the Christ? Is he your saviour? Is he the Lord of your life? If so... Then consider your wonderful privilege. You are eternally united to Jesus. The prophet of prophets. The great high priest. And the king of all creation. How blessed you are. How blessed we are. Amen.